Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, God's people. It is really good to be back in worship with you. We had a wonderful time traveling and seeing our grandkids and Alaska and North Carolina, and it seems like we've been back two weeks, but uh, we just got back last late last Monday night, and we're glad to be back with you this morning and, and to worship with you. And thank you for welcoming my friends, uh, Kim Lindender and, and Scott Gibson. I understand they both did a wonderful job, and that's a problem on my part. Your pastors learn that you, when you get a sub, you need to have somebody that people are glad when you're back. So it was kind of kind of close, but uh, glad to be back with you all. This morning I'm going to do something a little bit different and read our text first, and then we'll begin to think about it. So if you would, uh, listen to the story. Debbie mentioned it. It's found in Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. This is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In his book called Under the Unpredictable Plant, Eugene Peterson tells my favorite Eugene Peterson story. He tells about being a little five-year-old boy growing up uh, in farmland in Montana. And uh, behind the property he lived on, there was property owned by this old Norwegian farmer and his wife, Leonard and Olga Storm. Uh, He said they were imposing figures, that they sort of exuded a dark uh, Nordic gloom about them most of the time. Um, And um, he was five. He would walk across the meadow between his backyard and the fenced fields where Leonard Storm grew his crops. And he would stand at the fence line and watch Leonard Storm on his big John Deere tractor go back and forth across the field. And as a five-year-old, you know he wanted only one thing, right? A chance to ride on that big John Deere tractor. One summer day, he was standing at the fence and watching Mr. Storm plow the field. He was probably 100 yards away when Mr. Storm saw the boy. He stopped the tractor and he stood up and started waving his arms and shouting. 
And uh, Eugene had never seen anyone use gestures like that. He looked kind of mean and angry, and he was large and ominous in his bib overalls and standing there shouting at the little boy, and um, the wind was blowing against him, so Eugene couldn't hear what he was saying. So he figured he was in trouble. He was in the wrong place. Uh, Five-year-old boys often are. And so even though he didn't think he was doing anything wrong, he turned and ran back to the house. He felt rejected and rebuked, and he would love to have had a ride on that tractor. Leonard and Olga Storm were members of the little Pentecostal church that Eugene and his family attended there in Montana, and uh, they were always sitting on the back row. Um, They were considered wealthy by the standards of that little congregation, and whenever the church needed something extra that the offerings couldn't sustain, it was usually Leonard and Olga that paid for it. They had a a special needs child who was in a wheelchair. He had muscular dystrophy, and uh, he would sit in the back row with them in there. And uh, again, they were fairly uh, imposing-looking characters. And so the Sunday after that disappointment at the fence, Leonard came over to Eugene, and he said, Little Pete, Uh, Eugene hated it when he called him Little Pete. It made him feel smaller already. He says, why didn't you come out to the field Thursday and ride the tractor with me? And Eugene said, I I didn't know I could. I I thought you were chasing me away. He said, well, I called you to come. I wait for you to come. Why didn't you come? And Eugene said he didn't know that's what he was doing. He said, well, what do you do if you want to call someone to come to you? And he said, I stuck out my little skinny index finger and curled it back two or three times like I was calling a kitten. The big farmer harumphed. You've heard people do that. He said, that's piddling, little Pete. We do things big on the farm. And Eugene was crushed. Here's how he finishes the story. He says, I felt small. I was already small on the outside. Now I felt small on the inside. Disappointed and crushed, but also a little angry. This gigantic Norwegian farmer calling me and my world piddling. He thought about his experience at the barbed wire fence later as a grown-up, and he labeled it a failure of imagination. It was that which prevented him from enjoying a ride on the tractor. He said, I had such a small idea of the world. I interpreted the large, generous actions of the farmer through the cramped, confined experience of a five-year-old. And so I, of course, misinterpreted Our imaginations often fail us. Failure of imagination is a common experience. Uh, But maybe the most costly part of a failure of imagination is that we fail to be able to imagine God at work in our lives anymore. The capacity to fully imagine life with God as God intends it. We can't imagine ourselves living sacrificially or simply. We can't see ourselves becoming more spiritually mature than we are today. We can't imagine ourselves walking with God in such a way that God does extraordinary things through us or with us or around us or through us. We can't imagine that. We may have difficulty picturing our lives literally overflowing with joy and love and peace and abundance, as Scripture says, our lives can with God. Our imagination 
fails us. And because we can't imagine those things, we can't hear Jesus' invitation to come to him and experience those places. We resign our lives to life as it is, business as usual, the prosaic way it was yesterday and the day before and the day before that, and we assume that's the way it's going to be from this point on. We lose the capacity when our imaginations fail us, the capacity to imagine life as more than it is right now, something other than what we can see. And that changes the way we see the world. It changes how we pray. Our world becomes merely three-dimensional. And it loses the dimension of the kingdom of God that Jesus extends to us who are his followers. How did we get there? How did our imaginations so fail us? Along the way, something happened to our imaginations. And I, I believe imagination is a gift that God has given to us as human beings. This capacity to form images in our mind is how we remember things. We're going to remember Christ's death with bread and cup today, we form images there. It's the way we hope for things. It's the way we think about the future. God's given us this capacity called imagination, the ability to form images. It's more than a physical thing. And when we were children, it was rich in our heads. We lived with it all the time. We could see things in our mind's eye and hold them in our hearts. We could be astronauts or ballerinas or princesses or kings. We could fly with wings over water. We could read of Narnia and Middle Earth, and we were there. We had this capacity for imagination. But our imaginations often in this world get deconstructed before very long. Madeline LaEngle says the, the dirty devices of this world corrupt our imagination. It steals it from us. Culture and education, even church, can rob us of this capacity to imagine. We're told pretty early in our lives, stop imagining things. Don't imagine things. Uh, being Imagining things was a, a, akin to being deceptive or deceiving ourselves or... Uh, pretending, merely fantasizing. So a long time ago, maybe by the time of adolescence, we pretty much lose the capacity to live with a rich imagination. Um, we only see our lives as they appear to be. Our lives become very, very prosaic. We lose that. Now, fortunately for all of us, there are a few among us who retain that capacity. We call them poets and artists and musicians and prophets and storytellers. They retain a healthy imagination and they keep pushing it on us. But many of us have had our imaginations pretty much violently stripped away from us. And it's left us crippled spiritually. We're robbed of faith and hope because imagination is first cousin to both faith and hope. We can't believe that which we cannot imagine. We can't hope for that which we cannot imagine. You can hear it in our words. I can't imagine myself doing that. And we're right. We can't. Faith and imagination and hope are, are, are cousins. If we can't imagine ourselves riding a bicycle or running a marathon or graduating from graduate school or speaking a second language, we'll never do those things. We can't imagine it. If we can't imagine ourselves being a person of prayer, 
or engaging in acts of spiritual and uh, justice, if we can't imagine living simply or sacrificially, forgiving someone who has deeply wronged us, if we can't imagine consistently engaging in spiritual practices that shape us, if we can't imagine living free from anger or lust or greed, we're unlikely to do so. Our imaginations fail us at that point. And so the poets and the musicians and the storytellers and the prophets are God's gift to us to reignite our imagination and see things as more than they appear to be. Jesus' stories of the kingdom of God, particularly his parables, are meant to be stories that stir our imagination and help us see the world as more than it appears to be. They say to us, imagine that. And we can believe and hope when we do. <clears throat> so the story here in Matthew's gospel, <clears throat> that I read a few moments ago, is one of those stories that does more than simply report an incident out of Jesus' life. This happened one day. Well, of course it happened one day. But why preserve this story over all the many other things that happened in the life of Jesus? It's a story that was remembered and recorded and preserved in the church for its usefulness to the life of the followers of Jesus. It's a story that does something for the imagination. It's a story that helps us see the world as more than it appears to be and reminds us that Jesus is inviting us into something more than the world appears to be. And it's also the story of the failure of imagination, isn't it? So the heads of these disciples were already spinning with the things that they had seen Jesus do. Even most recently, they had been with him while he was teaching these parables of imagination and of the kingdom. And there were crowds of people there, 5,000 men plus women and children. And they were hungry. There was no food for them. And Jesus, through some sort of amazing act, had taken a box lunch and fed 5,000 plus people. And their heads were spinning about that. They could not imagine feeding that many people. But Jesus took five loaves and two fish and said, imagine this. And he fed the crowds. What an amazing thing. Then he dismissed the crowds and, and the disciples so he could get some time for prayer. And the guys crowded into the boat and they pushed away from the shore and they were going to go across the lake. Jesus promised to meet them later. But the wind was against them. They had rowed all night. They were a long way from shore, but they weren't where they wanted to be. And they were, as we would say in Texas, not making good time. They were pretty much stuck out there. Then just before dawn, Jesus decided to join them. And he struck out, not on a kayak or in another boat, but walking on the surface of the water. He walked toward them. Imagine that. Any way you want to think about this, it was really very cool. Jesus was a human being. He was as human as you and I are. Yes, he was the son of God, but he was a human being. Human beings get excited and thrilled by things. And there's no way that doing this was not fun. No surfboard, no kayak, no paddleboard would compare to what he was doing. Can you imagine walking on the water. It must have been an act of joy as he's making his way out toward his disciples. And then he got close to them, really close, close enough to be seen in the faint light, and the disciples caught a glimpse of him there on the water. 
And they were terrified. They were terrified in part because of their failure of imagination. They knew what water t- you know, surface tension on water was like. They knew if you put a boat in it, it would float. They knew if you stepped in it, you would sink. They understood how water works. They weren't, you know, they were just being realistic. That's the way the world is constructed. And so they knew that when you stepped in water, you went down, and they could not imagine anyone, let alone Jesus, walking on the surface of it. So they concluded the only thing they could conclude, which this must be a ghost. This must not be a human who's approaching us. This is frightening. This is terrifying. Couldn't be a person. If it was coming across the surface of the water, it must not have any substance to it. It must be a spirit. They were terrified. And Jesus recognizes that. He hears their shouts and screams, and he challenges their fear. And he says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, I'm pretty sure he had a smile on his face. I don't mean this to be disrespectful. But if Jesus ever punked anybody, this was it. How could he not have anticipated the disciples' response? He knew they would be scared. And he comes walking to them on the water in the pre-dawn hours in this light. And then, and only in Matthew's account of this story, the story shows up in other places, but then in Matthew's account, Peter speaks up, and only Peter. Peter has, for a moment, a flash of faith, a stirring of his imagination. For a moment, he sees the world differently than he's ever seen it before. Jesus is coming, and Jesus is walking on water, and for just a moment... He thought it might be possible. I I suspect he may have thought about this before. Been out in his fishing boat, forgot his knife, and looked out across the glassy uh, lake and thought, it looks as solid as the shiny, polished floor of the temple. I wish I could just walk back and get what I left on the shore. Maybe he's thought that before. But right now, Jesus is saying to him, "Uh, it's I. I I'm walking on water. And Peter says, Lord, it won't hurt to ask Jesus had said, follow me. I want her to ask, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Imagine that. The other 11 never entertained that thought, not for a second. They were still incorporating into their limited view of reality what they were witnessing here, and it was not computing very well. The thought that they might join him never crossed their minds. Their imagination completely failed them. But for Peter, for a moment... Peter saw what Jesus was doing, and he said, that is so cool. I would like to do that as well. Now, I know it was short-lived, but for a moment, he walked on water. For a moment, he did it. He surfed the waves of the Sea of Galilee without a board. He walked on water. His imagination stirred him. What if the other 11 had done the same thing? Can you imagine that scene? 13 men out on the waves, walking on water, celebrating with joy with Jesus, then climbing into the boat, high-fiving each other, fist-bumping, just being excited about what they had just seen possible. But the others never saw that. And then just as Peter was making history, his imagination failed him. He began to imagine what the winds and the waves were going to do to him. He had seen them before. He failed to imagine anymore what Jesus could do for him and what Jesus had invited him to do. And then, true to his name, he sank like a rock. 
Jesus, of course, rescued him. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Anne Lamott says there's really only three prayers that we ever pray. Help, thanks, and wow. And this is the help prayer. Lord, save me. And Jesus rescued him and pulls him up and then asks him the obvious question, what happened? You were doing so well. Why did you begin to imagine something bigger than I am? Why did you let your imagination fail? Where was your faith? Why did you imagine something more powerful than I am? Why did your faith fail you? Why did your imagination fail? What happened? And Jesus and Peter climbed aboard the boat. The wind ceased, and the 12 disciples looked at each other in awe over what they had witnessed. They could never have imagined such things. Although there may have been a few passages of Scripture that came to their mind, words like those of Job in Job 9.8, speaking of God as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Or Psalm 77.19, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And then they speak what's on their minds, the only conclusion they could draw. And it was what Jesus wanted them to learn from this unimaginable experience. Truly, you are the Son of God. Who is in the boat with us? Now, whatever else Peter's story tells us, it does tell us this. That when Jesus invites us out of the boat to join him in doing something more than we can imagine, more than we could do on our own. When he invites us to that, we may safely do it. We may move toward him. When Jesus invites the church out of our prosaic security, out of our unchristian cowardice, out of our selfishness to venture out onto the waves of his mission, we may safely do so. When he invites us to open our hearts and our lives and our possessions and generosity toward his mission, we may safely do so. He says to us, come, and we may come. But we have to keep our imagination prayerfully focused on him and determine that what the Son of God invites us to is a reality as much as are the winds and the waves. Eugene Peterson's story did not end with his humiliation at church on Sunday morning. Uh, Hear his own words. He said, a few days after my disappointment at the edge of his field and his reprimand in church, I was back at the fence, watching, hoping I might get a second chance. The giant Norwegian saw me, stopped the tractor, and did it again. He made the sweeping motion of invitation. I was through the barbed wire in a flash, running across the furrowed field and then up onto that big green John Deere. He let me stand in front of him, holding the steering wheel, pulling the plow across that long stretch of field. My smallness absorbed in his largeness. I've come to picture the scene on the Sea of Galilee very differently than I I, I once did, I think. I suppose I used to think of the exchange between Peter and and Jesus rather prosaically. um, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you. Come. Uh, That's not very exciting. 
But I don't think that works for me anymore. As I've thought about this story, Jesus is the sea walker. He, he's doing the unimaginable, and he's clearly enjoying it. And now I imagine that Peter sees the joy and the wildness of all of it and wants to participate in that. He sees Jesus doing it, and he says, Lord, may I come too? And I imagine Jesus waving his strong arms like Leonard Storm with a huge smile saying, come, by all means, come. Come walk on the water. Come trample the waves. Come do the unimaginable with me. Come join God in a kingdom that will not pass away. Come be forgiven and accepted. Come learn to be loved and to love. Come, make peace and reconciliation. Come, heal the sick and overcome the evil one. Come, learn to pray. Come, walk on the water. Come, walk with God. Come for rest. Come for life. Come. Jesus says, come. He's not extending a little finger and doing this. When he invites us, it is with the full force of the kingdom of God. Now, there's a place in your life now or in the near future where you may hear Jesus inviting you to something more than you've ever imagined. And he's not going to be twitching an index finger at you. That's piddling. His gesture is a huge one. God waves his strong, huge Jesus windmill arms and says, come, smiling and inviting you to join him in his kingdom. And that's going to require imagination. We're going to need, be able, need to be able to see more than we see in this tangible world around us. In a world like ours, which is filled with so much unchristian cowardice and hatred, responding to Jesus' imagination is going to require, Jesus' invitation is going to require great imagination. Christians, for the last number of years, have seemed to me to be some of the most fearful people on earth. Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? Where's your imagination? Can we not imagine ourselves as a church boldly loving this world that thinks very differently than we do? Can we imagine that? Can we imagine a church that lives with less fear, less judgmentalism, less condemnation, less isolation, and more engagement with the love of God and the kingdom of God. Can we imagine that? Because if we can't, we can't hear the invitation to come to it. Life in the kingdom of God cannot do with a failure of imagination. Our imagination needs to be refired with the gospel of the kingdom. The confession, Jesus is Lord, needs to restore our confidence and our commitment. The reality of Easter morning needs to infuse our thinking about our everyday lives and our world and all its troubles. The call to follow Jesus, to come to him, to walk with him, needs to lift our thinking out of the categories of this world and set them firmly in the category of the kingdom of God. The call to Jesus to follow him needs to let go of our piddling, kinds of unimaginative responses. The mercy of God needs to so transform our minds that we see the world differently. We live differently with each other. We live differently in our homes. We live differently in our world because we have an imagination that takes in the mercy of God. Let me repeat. There is a place in your life now or maybe in the very near future when God 
maybe inviting you to something more than you've experienced, more than you imagine, you've ever imagined. And he'll not be twitching a finger at you. He'll be waving his strong arms and inviting you to come, smiling, inviting us to join him in his kingdom. He's calling us to grace and mercy and salvation. He's causing, calling us to walk with him, rely on him, and, and represent him. He calls us to come to Good Friday Cross and the Easter morning empty tomb and the Holy Spirit Pentecost Church to walk boldly with him on the seas that would otherwise frighten us and to have our smallness absorbed in his largeness. Come, he says. The night before he died, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room, and it was for the purpose of stirred imagination to see the world differently than they had seen it before. They had celebrated Passover so many times, and they knew what the elements in the supper that they celebrated represented. But Jesus said, I want you to imagine them in a different way now. Uh, after supper, the scripture says that he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And every time you eat of it, I want you to imagine that. Remember that. And then he took a cup He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this cup, I want you to remember, imagine what I've done for you and what God's mercy is like for you. It coming to the table, the Lord's table, is always an imaginative experience. It's a time to remember what he has done for us and to imagine the deep love of God that we did not deserve and how that might be lived out as we take his life into us. Let's pray together. So, Father, we um, come before your table now, and it's a strain for us at times even to see more than just bread and cup here in front of us and to taste more than just bread and cup. We ask you to stir our imaginations with faith and hope this morning as we eat this and drink this, Pray we'll remember how deep, how deep your love for us is. And that we'll be nourished by it so that we might live fully with, as people of faith and hope in a world that needs to know you. We ask in Christ's name. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.